Good morning. Good morning. How is everybody? Good, 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 good. Um, well, if you guys are new here, my name's Chris, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and we are just blessed that you're here this morning. I was kind of thinking this morning during the 9 a.m. service, when the weather gets really crummy, everybody comes in like kind of downcast and sad, and we should be happy, right? Because we don't have what Portland and Seattle and Boise have right now, like tons of snow, unless you guys want that. You guys like the snow? Man. I want to fly south right now. Um, Anyhow, Uh, if you weren't here last week, I talked a little bit about a building opportunity that we have in the works, and I wanted to just, I'll preface that real quick, and then uh, if you guys want to know more about it, I'd encourage you to go watch the live stream from last week, like the first five or ten minutes there, and kind of get the full rundown of the building and what we're looking at doing. But the building is located at 623 East Wallace Avenue. It's right across the street from an old building called the Wedding Chapel, or it used to be called the Wedding Chapel. It's a really old church building downtown. And so we're in a 21-day period with the owner of the building right now, kind of doing our due diligence. He's pulled it off the market and has basically just said, why don't you guys pray about it and see if this is the direction that the Lord's leading you guys. And so we're just praying about that. And uh, honestly, I was just telling one of our elders beforehand, I've been trying to figure out what doors could shut and then like pressing into those areas and I have yet to find a door that's shut. It's been the craziest experience because in the past, the last two buildings we've looked at, it's just been shut door after shut door as we dealt with the city. It was one thing after another that they wanted us to have that the building didn't have and this building has been a totally different experience which is kind of neat thus far but we are really just praying and, and seeking the Lord to see if this is where he's leading us. Uh, for those of you that are new here, um, you know, our current situation is we rent this space here for Sunday mornings. We also rent uh, an office space downtown. We rent First Baptist Church on Tuesday nights for our rooted groups. We rent First Baptist Church on Thursday nights for our bib ed stuff. And then there's a really gracious family in the church that allows us to use their house Wednesdays and Thursday nights for uh, our junior high and high school ministries. And so our church is just kind of scattered everywhere, which has been a really great thing up to the point now where um, every little thing, extra thing we do, uh, buildings, pricing on building and the size of the building depends on how many people are going to be at each thing and everything's kind of TBD. And it's been just a really weird last couple months trying to sift through that as the church is... um, like church has almost doubled in size in a year. So uh, it's, it's just been a lot. So what we're asking of you guys is that you just be praying with us, honestly, that the Lord would shut all doors that he needs to shut or continue to open the doors that need to be open. Next Sunday night is our family meeting. And so if you call Anthem in your home and you'd like to come and kind of get an update on where we're at with our finances, what's coming up this next year, how last year ended up, what's going on with the building, we'd encourage you guys to be there so we can spend some time just kind of talking details as a family and trying to discern whether or not the Lord is leading us in this direction. So all good? Yeah? Okay. You guys with me this morning, I hope? Okay. Matthew chapter 12, if you guys would turn there with me. It's really interesting digging into these passages because I think that you know, I, I grew up in a church context, just so you guys know, where, and this isn't, this isn't to bash or anything, but I grew up in a church context where 
uh, every sermon I sat in as a kid growing up and even into Bible college were topical sermons. And so even in my Bible college that I went to, it was very much like teaching us how to put together three-point topical sermons, which um, later in life, my wife and I spent some time at a church in Southern California with a pastor that just taught verse by verse through the Bible. And in a few year period, it was just really life-giving and really encouraged my heart. And so as we get into these passages, there's a bunch of nuances in these, and I like to try my best to give some history and help us understand things, because I feel like as we have more understanding of why things were written, when they were, why they were, how they were, that it actually helps us understand the Bible a little bit more, and we don't just look at the Bible as a place we go to to cherry pick a verse that helps us at that season in our life. We actually go to it to learn, learn and understand the character of God, who he is, who he says we are, and what it means to be a, a person that would follow Jesus. And so um, I want to dig into these. Uh, last week, it was kind of odd because we had communion, we had this building discussion, and then we had this passage I was trying to get through, and I didn't get through it all. And so I want to, uh, because we ended so abruptly last week, I want to pick back up in Matthew 12, verses 6 through 8, and circle back around and talk through that. Uh, how many of you did your homework this week? I gave you a reading assignment, and I gave you three points. Did anybody do it? Okay, all of you did it. I'm very proud of all of you. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to get into those three points this morning in that text. So let's pray, if you would, uh, just bow your heads. Let's prepare our hearts for this time this morning. Jesus, I thank you so much for the opportunity to gather with your church. Lord, what a blessing it is to be here with your saints. Um, Lord, I know that there are people here who come here this morning with a lot going on in their life, uh, people that are here this morning that have a lot of questions, um, doubts, maybe skepticism. I'm praying this morning, God, that you do the heavy lifting, that you do the work in people's hearts that only you can do. I'm asking, God, as we open up your word, that you would speak to us through it. I just thank you for your church. I thank you for this family of people um, that we get to do life with and actually be involved in uh, the church together with and live in the same city with. Lord, it is just truly a blessing uh, to gather with your family this morning. And so I pray, God, your hand be upon this time, and I pray you'd anoint it and you'd use it for your purposes, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Awesome. So last week I had mentioned the fact that as we get into some of these sections, we'll see Jesus kind of appearing, looking like he's pushing back against the law. We talked about that last week. And at face value, I think we sometimes can make these assumptions when we see Jesus allowing his disciples, like we talked about last week, to pick the heads of grain in the field and to eat them on the Sabbath. Or as we'll see today, when Jesus actually performs miracles and he heals on the Sabbath, we sometimes make these assumptions that Jesus is frustrated with the Jewish law and deliberately pushing back against the Jewish law. And I want to challenge that a little bit this morning, because if you do a deep dive and you look at what Jesus is actually pushing back against, it's not the law that Jesus is pushing back against. It's not the law itself. It's actually the traditions and the customs that the Jewish people had derived from the law. And so I wanted to read a section this morning of a book called The Talmud, and it's this compilation of sort of code and traditions um, that, that were derived from the Jewish law. And so you had the law that God gave 
the, the, the Jewish people. And then you have the code and the traditions that were derived from that law. So for instance, last week we talked about this whole idea of Sabbath and, and God's command to um, adhere to a Sabbath. And so it would be that one day a week that you cease from work. Well, then the, the Jewish people went a step further and they began to take cease from work and then they begin to define work and try to get details on like what does that mean what is work and so what are we agreeing to cease or to stop from and so this Talmud is sort of that deep dive into unpacking the law and then getting all these details on what work means and what it means to actually adhere to the law and so it's 24 chapters in the Talmud just dealing with the Sabbath laws and so I want to read a quote a long quote from a Jewish historian to help you kind of get a sense of some of the crazy traditions that were attached to keeping the Sabbath. So he writes this, under Sabbath regulations, a Jew could not carry a load heavier than a dried fig, but if an object weighed half that amount, he could carry it twice. Um, eating restrictions were among the most detailed and extensive. You could eat nothing large, eat nothing larger than an olive, and even if you tasted half an olive, found it to be rotten and spit it out, that half was considered to, be, to have been eaten as far as the allowance was concerned. Throwing an object into the air with one hand and catching it with the other was prohibited. So if you're a juggler, no go for you on the Sabbath, right? Tailors did not carry a needle with them on the Sabbath for fear that they might be tempted to mend a garment and thereby perform work. Anybody else struggle with that? It's a really hard one for me. Uh, I always want to have <laughs> my gear with me so I can tailor something. Uh, nothing could be bought or sold and clothing could not be dyed or washed. A letter could not be dispatched even by the hand of a Gentile. No fire could be lit or extinguished, including fire for a lamp. Fire already lit could be used with certain limits. For that reason, some Orthodox Jews today use automatic timers to turn on lights in their homes before the Sabbath begins. Otherwise, they might forget to turn them on in time and have to spend the night in the dark. This one I hate. Baths could not be taken for fear that some of the water might spill onto the floor and wash it, which would have been work. A woman was not to look in a mirror, lest you see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. You could carry ink to draw only two letters of the alphabet. And then this one surprised me. False teeth could not be worn because they exceeded the weight limit for burdens. And I had to actually double check that one. It is true. They had false teeth and apparently they were extremely heavy. Uh, according to regulations, you could not pull off even a handful of grain to eat on the Sabbath unless you were starving, which of course is often a difficult thing to determine and would be cause for considerable differences of opinion. Uh, last week, we, we saw that in the text that we studied, that if a person, um, you know, was pulling off the grain and then moving it in between their fingers like they were, they were technically working, and which is why the Pharisees were um, sort of combating Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath. Uh, if a person became ill on the Sabbath, and I want you to remember this as we move forward through this passage this morning, but if a person became ill on the Sabbath, only enough treatment could be given to keep them alive. Treatments to make them improve was declared to be work and therefore forbidden. Now, to determine just how much food, medicine, or bandaging would be necessary to keep a person alive and no more was itself an impossible burden. 
So as you can see, it wasn't about the law in and of itself. It was about all these derivatives of the law that they had created. That they created. But the Sabbath in and of itself at this time was anything but a time of rest. Like this historian goes on to write, it had become a time of, of oppressive frustration and anxiety. The people were sick to death of the system that had been imposed on them by ungodly, worldly legalists, and they were indeed weary and heavy laden. So just think about this. If your identity and your holiness, your set-apartness was literally wrapped up in this, how burdensome would that feel? If you knew that every Sabbath, in order for you to keep it, you had this long list of requirements that you had to adhere to, would that feel restful for anybody in here? You type A personalities like, yeah, man, give me the list. Um, it wouldn't be that restful. So thousands of man-made restrictions were, were put in on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was actually more tiresome than the six days of work prior to like, leading up to it. It, it was harder to rest than to earn a living. It took a lot of work not to work. Anthem, I want to challenge you this morning because I think that we are a people in a culture that are chasing so hard. Some of us are trying to find salvation in your work. We're trying to find it in our bodies. We're reaching, we're fighting to try to find it in other people's perceptions of us. And this constant expending of energy is what Jesus is trying to actually call you away from. When he talks about calling you to his rest, he's calling you away from the life of just constantly trying to keep up and build and acquire and do. He's trying to call you away from that. It's what he's inviting us to when he talks about inviting us into his rest. He's inviting us to rest from that. Not just on the weekends, it's not just a vacation, but literally as a foundation of your lives. Now, I'm going to go on here in a second, but I wanted to get more into Sabbath. And one question that can come oftentimes when you read through a passage like this uh, from a believer is just, so is the Lord expecting us to uphold the Sabbath today? As Christians, are we called to uphold the Sabbath? Now, my community group, the last two weeks in a row, have had like a two-hour plus discussion every week just talking about Sabbath. Are we supposed to keep it? What does it look like to keep it? What you realize when you deep dive into it is that you run the risk of creating all the forms and functions that Jesus is pushing back against. And so next week, I actually want to just spend next Sunday answering that question. We're just going to talk about, is, are we required to keep the Sabbath as followers of Jesus? So back in. My encouragement to you, my challenge to you this morning, is that I think that we need some help. I think that we need some help in this because too many of us have actually come to Jesus and yet we still functionally look for life and hope outside of him. And it's dangerous. So, so we need help. And so I want us to see three things. Last week I, I gave you these three things and the, the passages that I, I had asked you guys to read. Um, but these three things are three reasons that Jesus gives for why being defined by his rest instead of our work is our only hope. And, uh, and so the, the three are first, what God did. Second, what God wants. And third, who God is. So read with me Matthew chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, and then we'll get going. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
Now here's the massive assumption that I make is that we read through this text, some of us have read it a lot, and we never kind of stop to figure out what is Jesus saying? Like what does he mean by these statements that he's making? And so the first reason for why his rest is our only hope that I'm gonna give is what God did. If you look at Matthew 12, 6, Jesus says this, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What the heck did Jesus mean by this? This is actually an amazing statement, totally blasphemous to the ears uh, of the Pharisees. But the temple was the most important structure in ancient Israel. It was literally the center of the sacrificial system. It was the place where God would meet with his people. And so what does it mean when Jesus says he's actually greater than the most important structure that they knew? Like, that's a massive statement that Jesus is making. Simply put, what Jesus is saying is he's claiming to be God himself, that the only thing greater than having a physical place to go to meet with God would actually be having God himself walk amongst us. And so if the temple was the center of the sacrificial system, then what was God telling us in him becoming a man and overriding the temple in and of itself? He's telling us that the slaughtering of bulls and goats and the sacrificial system and to find life and rest was just simply never enough for mankind. It was never meant to be enough for us. That was not supposed to be the end-all goal. He's saying that unless he comes for us, unless I come for you, then you have nothing to hope in. You have nothing real, nothing substantial. You have nothing that will last. And the big mistake for some in ancient Israel was actually getting so wrapped up in the system of sacrifice, thousands of years and thousands of sacrifices, but they were always meant to point beyond the sacrifice. And these sacrifices over thousands of years, again, were always point to meant to point to one final sacrifice, big enough for all the nations of the world. This is the good news, you guys. That's the point of the promise in Genesis 3 and the promise in Genesis 12. All the way throughout Scripture, the thread is because Jesus came because you and I need outside help if we're actually going to have any hope at all. We cannot do it ourselves. Like if salvation in and of itself was a DIY project where we could figure it out, we sort of watch the YouTube video and then we just go create our own salvation, we wouldn't have actually needed Jesus to come. He would have just stayed back and gave us a list of rules and called it a day or given us the system of sacrifices and called it good. But Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he gives us this book And it points to one final sacrifice, to one mediator between us and God, Jesus, to one high priest. And this book tells us to put all of our hope in that. And so Jesus came not just to pay for our sins, although he did that. Jesus came not just to uh, help us get out from underneath the wrath of God, because that's part of it. It was central to the cross and to his resurrection, But Jesus came so that you and I would actually have full abundant life. Salvation, to come out from under the wrath of God and be granted abundant life. That's why in John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it what? Abundantly. Abundantly. So let me ask you guys some questions this morning. If Jesus came so that we could have life, abundant life, the true fullness of life, and he came so that you wouldn't have to put your hope for life and salvation anywhere else, 
Not in your job, not in your bank account, not in your relationships, nowhere else, only in him. If Jesus came for that purpose that was greater than the temple, my question for you is then why do we still go looking for life in other places? Why? I really hope that you guys can see and understand this morning that every one of our attempts to go find life apart from Jesus is basically denying Jesus' incarnation. Like God in the flesh living amongst us, living a sinless life, dying a brutal death, being resurrected. Like you're denying the incarnation of Jesus if you think that you can go out there and attain this life on your own. Like it's a DIY project that you, just requires you to get all your T's crossed and your I's dotted. And if you do it all, you've basically earned your way there. And in doing that, you forsake the whole purpose of Christ altogether. Second reason why his rest is our only hope is because of what God wants. In, in 12.7, Jesus says this. And if you'd known what this means, I desire mercy. Please listen to this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And so Jesus like brings the hammer down hard on the Pharisees. The the Pharisees condemned Jesus and his disciples for doing what? Eating grain on the Sabbath, for working to prepare it for themselves in their hands. And so Jesus comes down on them because they simply have no understanding of the heart of God. They don't, they missed his heart. These rigorous rules that they've got themselves steeped in, that they got to just keep to the rules, sort of left them without any understanding of who God actually is and also what God actually wants. I don't think that's too far off than where some of us are at today. Where you follow the rules or you do all the right things, there's so much about getting the, the T's crossed and the I's dotted that you've actually lost the heart of God. You don't even understand who he is. Anthem, God is our heavenly father. He's the God of the Bible. What he wants is mercy, not sacrifice. This is a quote from Hosea 6 that Jesus uses here. But, but through this quote, Jesus wants these Pharisees to see that their pursuit of salvation through keeping the law was actually taking them further and further away from the heart of God himself. And their assumptions were so big that they were actually taking them away from the very thing that they were trying to get closer to. Is that not ironic? And why is this? Because God doesn't delight in sacrifice like he delights in mercy. And we have to hear this. God's not after your sacrifices. In fact, he isn't even impressed by the sacrifices that you think you've made. He knows who you are. He he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows your frailty. He knows your need. He knows that without him, you basically have nothing. Without him, we're basically just living to die, as crazy as that sounds. He's not looking for your sacrifices. He's looking for mercy. 
God's trying to call us away from the arrogance that exists in all of us, this attitude that makes us want to be self-made. I mean, it's prevalent in our culture. We're trying to build ourselves, leverage our platforms, make something of ourselves. We're working around the fringes and the edges of our lives to work hard to create something, all the while missing the core of who God is, the heart of who God is, because we're, in a sense, trying to build our own hope and our own salvation. We're making our own way. And we want to provide for ourselves. We want to take care of ourselves. We, we want to be defined by our work like we, like we talked about yesterday. And if you pull that string far enough, it sort of plays out in this assumption that we can sacrifice and create our way to security. We can make our own joy in life. We can become fulfilled on our own. We can become satisfied on our own, a.k.a. we can be saved on our own. But God looks right through that, right through it. He looks through all your maneuvering. He sees men and women in desperate need of mercy. I don't know about you, I need God's mercy. Like part of our calling is just to get better at enjoying the mercy of God. His mercies, it says, are new every single day, that he holds out his mercies for us, that he, he knows we need it, that he doesn't hold it back, that he gives more than we could ever use, that we can never exhaust his mercy if we're actually found in him. This is great news. And I was thinking about this the other day. Like people who allow themselves to be marked by mercy are, are people who are willing to be defined by the work of somebody else. And in turn, they become people who are able to finally rest. This is it. Like, you want to know why you're so tired and wrung out? You've worked so hard building your life. You've tried so hard to save yourself, to find hope. You've reached so hard in the fringes of your life to make something happen for yourself that you've lost the heart of God. And then you get to a point where you go, why do I feel so tired? And you realize you've displaced Jesus altogether. Like this actually has become about me and me building my life, not about me finding rest in him. Last and third reason why his rest is our only hope is because of who God is. It says in Matthew 12, 8, for the Son of Man, listen to this, is Lord of the Sabbath. Like, what an amazing picture of Jesus. What does it mean when he calls himself Lord of the Sabbath? It actually means that his desire for you and I to, to find rest isn't just a thought that God had one day. It isn't just a part of the story that he thought would be an interesting plot twist. Like, you know what? Now I'm going to throw this in there. Now it's going to be about finding rest in me, and I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Voila. Like, actually, since the beginning of time, his hope was that you would find rest in him, that you would acknowledge him as the Lord of the Sabbath, not put the Sabbath in a place where it was about attaining and doing and trying to find rest in yourself. It was about pointing back to him. And so he says this because his desire for us is to find rest at the core of who he is. So Jesus identifies himself as the Lord of our rest because his desire by his very character and nature hopes that we would find it, that we would really find rest in him. And I want you to think about Jesus walking his disciples through this field, this grain field. Jesus knows that they're hungry 
he, he lets them start like filling their stomachs and grabbing the grain and eating it. And I was thinking about the fact that the disciples would have known the Jewish law. They would have been sort of looking at Jesus and then looking back and, and looking down at the grain and asking him, like, are you sure this is okay? Like, you sure, you sure you're good with this? Like, and just imagine the peace that they would have felt as they really felt the blessing of the Lord. Yeah, go eat it. Partake in it. Like, I provided that for you. He wants the same for you and I today, to delight in him. God is this father by his nature, which means he desires good for his kids by his very nature. My, my hope for us is that we would decide together as brothers and sisters to use every ounce of strength and every breath that God gives us to actually pursue rest in Jesus. That, that we would find that, that everywhere we find our hearts being pulled by something else or someone else, that we would just pull that back a little bit, take every thought captive, run back to Jesus, confess it, and ask Jesus to help us. Then he goes on, verses nine and 10. It says this, he went on from there and he entered their synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him, in part. <laughs> so they begin to question Jesus. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, is what they're asking him. And the answer is yes. Only if what is being dealt with is actually life-threatening, according to their law, then it was okay to heal. But this withered hand, understand, that didn't count. That wasn't a matter of life and death, this withered hand. It didn't count. It wasn't life-threatening. And so they asked Jesus if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And there's a couple things that stand out to me about this question. One, not sure if you pick it up, but this man with the withered hand doesn't ask the question. Who asks the question? The Pharisees. Isn't that interesting? He's not the one asking for it. Which sort of leads you to think maybe this dude's like a pawn in their game. <laughs> Like they're using him to leverage something so they can catch Jesus. The second thing that stands out about this question is that it actually suggests that they believe that Jesus could heal. Understand the guy has not been healed yet, but they're asking him about healing. So why would you ask this question unless you thought he could heal? Like the, 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 the man hasn't been healed at this point. I'm sure people have seen Jesus heal. If they haven't seen him heal up to this point, they, they've at least heard about Jesus healing. And then the third thing is that they really don't want an answer. It's kind of a rhetorical question. Like in verse 10, it says that they asked the question so that they could what? Accuse him. They didn't want his answer. They wanted to accuse Jesus. They wanted to catch Jesus. So what were they trying to accuse Jesus of? In their mind, they were trying to accuse Jesus of breaking one of their traditions on the Sabbath. Not necessarily breaking the law, but breaking the traditions that they had created from the law. And so if Jesus, choos if Jesus chooses to heal this man with the withered hand, he's not necessarily breaking the Sabbath law. He, he's breaking one of their man-made traditions that's attached to the Sabbath law. And so the, the question is sort of posed, is it lawful, Jesus, to heal on the Sabbath is what they're asking. And Jesus answers with a question in verse 11. And he says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? 
So there's, there's the question. And the obvious answer is that all of you in this room, I think, would probably lift the sheep out, right? You see a sheep struggling, it's on the Sabbath, like the merciful part of you thinks, I'm going to lift that sheep out. But understand the Pharisees are sort of silent here. And what's really sad about their silence is that if they chose to get their sheep out of the pit, their motivation was not out of mercy and was not out of a love for the sheep. Their motivation would have been strictly economic in nature. People didn't own sheep as pets. Do people today own sheep as pets? Maybe? That's kind of odd. Um, people, people owned sheep to make money off the sheep. But if your sheep dies, you're impacted financially. So you own sheep to make money. And here's the reality is that letting this man with a withered hand stay in that condition does not actually affect their bottom line. So yeah, they'd get the sheep out. But what about the merciful heart that would want to heal the man with the withered hand? And so Jesus goes on in verse 12 with a statement about how much more valuable this man is than a sheep. And that mankind, men and women, are of much more value than animals because we're literally created in the image of God. So in verse 12, Jesus answers this question. So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And there's his answer. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath is what Jesus says, which means healing, but also pulling the, the, the sheep out of the pit. Like Jesus' answer is do any good, like any good you could do. It comes out of mercy, like do any good you want on the Sabbath. Verse 13, they said, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. So I want you to pay attention to what Jesus says. He says, stretch out your hand. The man had a withered hand. Jesus doesn't say, stretch out your arm. It's like Jesus knew the guy's hiding his hand. Jesus knew exactly who the guy was, exactly what he was experiencing. Jesus says, stretch out your hand, and his hand is restored. Like a man who doesn't display any faith at all, he doesn't even speak, and Jesus sees him, Jesus sees his need, Jesus calls it out, and then Jesus heals it. Remember back in verse 8, Jesus refers to himself again as the Lord of the Sabbath. That was sort of like the declaration, this is who I am. But then you actually see the demonstration of it. He's not just the Lord of the Sabbath. He actually functions like the Lord of the Sabbath. He's healing on the Sabbath. He's fixing a man's withered hand. Isn't this amazing that Jesus would do this? I mean, think about all of the good things that have taken place thus far. And then this man is healed. This man probably could go back to work after having his hand stored. Think of restored. Think of all the limitations that existed in this man's life prior to this instance. Think about all his insecurities, all his effort to hide that hand so that nobody would ever see it. And now all of a sudden, he can get back into doing the things that he loved to do. It's like an amazing ending to the story if it ended here. But then he goes into verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Anybody else stumped by this? <laughs> like, what did Jesus do to, get, do to literally have people conspiring against him to destroy him? What a transition in light of what just took place. They conspire against him. In, in Mark's gospel account, it says that they conspired with this group called the Herodians, these followers of Herod. They weren't religious people. They were following Herod, this Roman-appointed king of Israel. 
And now you have the Pharisees conspiring with them in their mind like the enemy to actually destroy Jesus. They conspire with the enemy to bring hatred towards Jesus. And I want you to notice that this is kind of a critical moment in the writing of Matthew because there's this transition that takes place. Like we've talked about all these great things about Jesus and all these things that he's saying and leading his disciples, calling his disciples to himself. And then there's this transition. And if Jesus was asked the question, um, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? What if Jesus would have said, no? What would have happened? The Pharisees probably would have been stoked because Jesus was on the same page with them. What if they asked Jesus the same question and Jesus responded, yes, but he didn't actually heal on the Sabbath? They probably would have disagreed with Jesus. They probably would have exchanged words, but they probably would have been generally pleased because Jesus didn't necessarily break a commandment. They weren't upset just because Jesus said yes to their question and healed on, their, on the Sabbath. Like their deep hatred comes as Jesus points out their hypocrisy. And that really, from this moment on, it seals Jesus' fate. You want to talk about the road to the cross? We just started it. There's hatred towards Jesus from all sides. They're all coming against him, trying to set him up to get him killed. And this pretty much guaranteed Jesus' way to the cross. And so there's this huge transition that takes place here in Matthew's account when he uses this word conspired. Um, as you see it in verse 14, it actually only appears, that word, in one place in all of the Gospels, and it's right here in Matthew's writing. This word has like a ton of certainty um, packed into it. it. It's defined as a secret agreement to do an unlawful thing. Isn't that ironic? Men who were so worried about keeping the law actually had no problem breaking it if it benefited themselves. They were literally going to work together to do whatever they had to to destroy Jesus from this point forward. As I read this, I was thinking like, our world is very similar. Like, we'd abandon the gospel if it benefited us. If it doesn't benefit us, like, then we'll stay the course. But we're always looking for the benefit of everything else without acknowledging who the Lord of the Sabbath is. Who, who is it that we're following? And these guys are just totally willing to abandon the law that they hold so dearly if it means that it benefits them to conspire against this man, Jesus, to get him killed and get him out of the way so that they can go on with their Jewish lives. And here's the response, verses 15 through 21. Jesus, listen to these words, aware of this, does what? He withdraws. Doesn't run away. <laughs> intentional he withdraws and all these people follow him and Jesus begins to heal them all and he orders them to not not to make him known like it just wasn't the time for him to be known at this time and so Matthew quotes this whole section here out of Isaiah 42 he says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah 700 years prior this was written behold my servant whom I have chosen my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. This is like recounting Jesus' life. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. 
He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Is that awesome? That's you. You're the Gentiles. In Jesus' name, you have hope. So how does Jesus respond to this whole conspiracy against him? What's his response? I mean, look at the life of Jesus. What is his, does he freak out? Is he going nuts because all hell's breaking loose and he doesn't know where to turn? He's uncertain of everything. He's just gonna freak out? No, Jesus responds with calm. Jesus actually ups the game and becomes even more compassionate and loving. He handles people with care. He handles people with certainty, pointing them in the right direction. He knows that he's gonna bring justice through victory on the cross. And so Jesus is eventually destroyed. And then Jesus, ironically, becomes the destroyer. And then with that, you and I have victory. When he talks about the Gentiles finding hope in him, that's a result of the work of Jesus. And then there's this verse in the middle of this text in Isaiah that's so amazing that I just like read and reread and reread. It says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. In the Jewish life, this, these bruised reeds and these smoldering wicks were commonplace. Like they knew exactly what, what they were talking about. Not so much with us. But these reeds were, were used for instruments and these wicks would have been used in all of their lamps. But when a reed becomes bruised, it means that the reed is no longer usable anymore. That it just didn't fit its purpose. And so they would throw them away and they'd go get a new reed and put it in. Any of you in here that play instruments that utilize reeds understand this. And this whole idea of the smoldering wick was that the smoldering wick was no longer useful anymore because what is it doing? It's not putting out light, it's actually putting up smoke. And the whole intention of having the wick was for it to produce light. But Jesus, we read here, he says, he won't break a bruised reed and he won't quench a smoldering wick. And what just astounds me when I read this is because, because of Jesus, there's actually a chance that beautiful music will be played again. There's something redemptive about it, that you add Jesus to a little bit of smoke and what do you get? You get light and you get fire. <laughs> Jesus doesn't discard anybody like men with withered hands, Jesus takes the time in the midst of knowing what's about to happen in his life and the fact that they're conspiring against him. Instead of Jesus going, I know your plans, you guys are coming at me, like freaking out or trying to um, get away from everything that's taking place. Instead, Jesus sees the person. He sees them as redeemable. The thing that everybody else thought was no good, the bruised reed, it says, Jesus, it says, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Like you add Jesus to anything and you get light, you get life, you get something that's reusable. And these men with the, the withered hands, Jesus gives us care and he gives compassion to them. And I think the interesting thing to note about Jesus' life is how Jesus responds in light of certain destruction. 
Like, he remains constant, compassionate. He never wavers from the mission. And then the challenge for me is like looking at the last year, like I don't know how many times I've said to somebody in this last year, everybody else felt like they had a really restful year this last year. I felt like it was far from restful. And I look at, I get in the the midst of it all and there's part of me that feels anxious. I feel like my heart's racing. I don't know what to do. There's all this uncertainty. People are freaking out around you and in our world in general with what's taking place. And yet we're promised as followers of Jesus that there is a calm and a rest that Jesus can provide for us. And that rest actually produces compassion and kindness and love and mercy from us to those who find themselves in very similar situations. And my encouragement to some of you today is that no matter where you're at, I really hope this encourages you because Jesus takes those bruised, those bruised reeds and Jesus repurposes them and he gives them new life. And that's like the glorious part of being a follower of Jesus. Next week, again, I want to pick up on this whole idea of are we as Christians supposed to uphold the Sabbath? And I want to spend some time talking through that question. Um, But I want to leave you with this today. Like, some of you really need the rest of God. And when I say that, you don't just need a day off. You actually have misplaced your priorities in your life and they're found all over the fringes and you find yourself hustling and bustling and trying to maneuver and make a way and build your hope and build your life and essentially establish your own salvation. And I think that some of us, sometimes we just need to hit a place where we confess and say, Lord, I've just reached for way too many other things and I've denied the rest that you can only give me. And the really sad part, you guys, is that when we deny his rest, we actually deny his compassion and mercy and kindness from us towards others. It's not just impacting you. Your rest in Jesus actually produces something in you by him that God extends to the rest of the world. If you find yourself reaching and you're stressed out and you're anxious, how in the world are you gonna be a compassionate, calm, collected, loving, merciful voice to anybody else. So I have no idea where you're at this morning. For some of you, maybe the simple call of like, maybe as generic as it sounds, like, do you need to come to Jesus? Do you need rest that only he can give you? Some of you know that you've reached for so many other things and find yourself at a place of wanting and striving and doing only to find that it's not doing anything for you except for stressing you out even more and making you more tired. So I wanna pray for you. I wanna pray for God's rest for your soul. I wanna pray for a real intentional time even during our worship this morning where the spirit of God would really invade your hearts and would come in and he would convince himself of who he is and what he did and who you are in him so that your rest can be found in him and not found in all the other things that are going to attack you once you exit these doors this morning. Would you guys stand with me? If you're with a family or friends and you're comfortable holding hands, why don't you guys hold hands? Um, If you're not, that's totally fine, but let's pray. Jesus, I just want to thank you for 
each and every soul that's represented here today. God, I acknowledge that um, there's been many seasons in my own life where I've strived and reached for so many different things. And I've had to have been let, led back to a place where I realize at the core um, that my rest, that the compassion and merciful side of me only exists as a result of what Jesus has done for me. And so I pray that you'd extend that to your church this morning, God. I pray for those that are here this morning that just can feel their heart racing, that just feel anxious and stressed out inside. I'm praying, Jesus, for simply a deep breath this morning where they can actually experience the rest that you have for them. I'm praying, God, for those who think that your grace and your mercy have ran out for them, that they're this bruised reed that's been thrown away. And I ask Jesus that you come in this morning, that you invade their hearts, that you, Jesus, reveal yourself to them and the fact that you're in the line of work of repurposing the bruised reeds. God, I pray that there be those here this morning that would find their purpose and their value in you. And God, I pray as we leave these doors, Lord, that it's not just about us going out and proclaiming the gospel, but it is about us being an extension of your compassion and your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness and the gift that you've bestowed upon us to the rest of the world. And so I pray you'd move through your church, your people. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.